This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about a Commonwealth Fund ranking. It's an annual ranking of the health systems of the rich countries. And uh, Canada does not rank very well. We are 10th out of 11th. Uh, the U.S. is apparently far behind us, but we still have a ways to go. So I'd like to know, audience, uh, what are your barriers? Is it wait times? Is it all the kind of uh, para-health things that you have to pay for, like dentistry and, and physical therapy and things like that? Uh, what is the main problem? Maybe your doctor is retiring and you haven't found a new doctor, so it's access to primary care. Maybe it's not being able to get in to see your doctor for days after you feel sick. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-734-740. I am talking to Dr. Amal Verma. Sarah Allen and Dr. Aaron Schneider, who is the Senior VP for Policy and Research at the Fund. And Dr. Schneider, I know that it was prepared before the pandemic, I'm assuming. What has the pandemic changed? Yeah, that's a great question. And and so, yeah, our report really shows how the table was set uh, just prior to the pandemic. It, it, uh, and, and actually, I think we could have predicted some of the challenges uh, that countries were going to face during the pandemic based on what we knew about these issues of, t- of access, financial barriers. Uh, and we're seeing it play out to some extent in the vaccination uh, rollout uh, in different countries. Uh, Dr. Verma, I mean, we, we have covered, you know, there's a recovery plan for uh, Canada uh, in terms of, and for Ontario in terms of catching up on a whole mix of procedures that were off because of the pandemic. Would you say that our catch-up plan puts us further behind the eight ball or are we catching up? Yeah, I think every country obviously has suffered major setbacks as a consequence of the pandemic. I think in some ways, uh, you know, Canada has been fortunate to manage the various waves, um, you know, with Globally speaking, relatively low rates of uh, uh, COVID-19 infection mortality, um, although it's caused severe disruptions in our health system. If we look at this report, you know, the couple of the areas where Canada actually does quite well is in things like uh, preventive care, so cancer screening uh, and chronic disease management. And those are actually two of the areas that the pandemic disrupted a lot, right? People were not going in for their mammograms and their colonoscopies and things like that. And so I think um, our, we, we were in a pretty good position before the pandemic on those areas, but it has, as you said, resulted in a lot of delays in procedural care. And that's really where we're scrambling to catch up. And I think we'll be seeing some of the consequences of the pandemic for years to come. I think one of the really important points you made, uh, both uh, you and Dr. Schneider made, Libby, was that, you know, the rankings can be a bit a bit misleading in the sense that Canada is, although we're in 10th place, we're closer to 1st than we are to 11th. And I think what that, you know, it's one of the other areas that's really good about our health system in this report is in the safety aspect. Uh, in general, we have pretty good quality and safe healthcare when when you need it. And so I think as Canadians, we should continue to be, you know, I certainly am grateful and, and proud of our health system, but cognizant that, you know, we still have, like you said, a ways to go if we really want to be among the best of the best in the world. And uh, this report is really useful in highlighting a few of those specific areas. Uh, Dr. Allen, uh, what do you think about where we stand? Uh, we're still in the pandemic, of course, but starting to come out of it, hopefully. Yeah, and I think a lot of these issues will be worsened. You know, the the issue of wait times for one thing. We have a major backlog in surgery, so this is going to be a huge challenge without making reforms to the way we manage wait lists. So other countries use things like waitlist guarantees and 
centralized intake. So each physician doesn't manage their own wait list, and it can be more, um, you know, centralized in a way to which is more efficient. So without those major changes and just putting more money in, we're unlikely to address these challenges of wait times. Uh, there's other things that have changed, maybe for the better, like our poor, um, you know, poor performance in terms of information technology and being able to speak with your doctor or have a video chat. That's improved. We've been able to really ramp up virtual care, which is tremendous and giving us lots of, you know, improved convenience and reduction in, in some of the time it takes to, to have a consultation. So that's something we, I hope will, will continue to sort of stay post pandemic and we'll make sure that people have access to the technology they need to communicate with their physician and, and other, others on the care team. Um, otherwise, I think we're, you know, we can't become complacent. I think, you know, you pointed out we're usually near the bottom in these rankings that are done every few years. So, you know, it's really hard to change the health system, but we shouldn't become complacent and we should continue to think, you know, what can we learn from these top performers that are doing things a little bit differently and, and try to, to continue to make changes and, you know, maintain our pride in the health system where we're doing well, but also to try and seek, uh, you know, some of those improvements that this, this report really highlights. We have a caller who has something to say about the virtual care piece here, Christine in Ancaster. Hi, Christine. Hi there. Um, I'm actually, I think some of the aspects of virtual are good. However, there are times when you do need to see your primary care doctor and the opportunity just isn't there. They just almost uh, flat out refuse to see you. I think I think that's very individual with, uh, you know, I think each doctor is kind of deciding if and when they'll see their patients in, per- in person. Your doctor uh, hasn't uh, allowed you to see them in person? Um, I don't think uh, in a timely manner, no, no. And uh, that's concerning. Uh huh. And uh, you don't think that you can solve your problems with virtual care? Not always. Not if you have um, an issue where, you know, that you, I think you lose a lot when you don't see the person physically. Yeah. Well, explain, you just explain your issue, but they don't see you physically. Like, for example, I don't know, an ear infection, a blood clot. Uh, those types of things, like if a person doesn't see you and you just say your leg's sore, well, that can get misconstrued as a pulled muscle. Okay, Christine, I'll run that by our experts. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, so, Dr. Schneider, did you measure anything to do with virtual care, and does it have its limits, and uh, is it exceeding its limits because of the pandemic? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Libby. The, the, uh, we're actually seeing this across the countries. We did actually ask a few questions about the experience of virtual care, but it was before the pandemic, and there wasn't really that much virtual care happening. We're really in an era now of, of, um, of implementing digital telehealth, virtual care that, that uh, we haven't seen at this scale before, and there's a lot of trial and error, I believe, across all countries in how to get that right when to use it, when to stay with uh, in-person visits. Uh, Canada has been a leader in, in the virtual care uh, arena, but all countries are now, I think, faced with how to, op- how to put it into practice and, and make it effective. Dr. Verma, are we doing this right? Yeah, it's a really great question, Libby. It's a challenge. I think I can speak sort of from my role as a clinician that even in the clinics that I uh, work in at St. Michael's, it's been a struggle thinking about when do you you know, ramp down in order to maintain pandemic safety? And when do we ramp back up? I completely agree with the caller that a certain aspect of care for certain kinds of conditions gets lost in the virtual space. But then there's lots of other types of care which are really efficiently delivered virtually. And you don't want to end up having to come in for paying parking and waiting and all of that stuff. And so I think, as as Eric pointed out, trying to get the balance right uh, is going to take a lot of trial and error. I certainly don't think we're there yet. Um, and I do think we have a long ways to go. I think also our caller highlighted a really important aspect of problem pre-existing the pandemic with our healthcare system, which was the ability to access your primary care pr- provider in an urgent and timely fashion. You know, that, that was one of the areas where Canada ranked the worst even before the pandemic. Yeah, I, I think mean... another area where Canada ranks really poorly, sorry, just really quickly, is that um, 
in in terms of accessing uh digital technologies that are integrated, you know, being able to access your own lab test results or use a common secure platform to contact your healthcare provider. We're we're quite far behind in that in international comparisons as well. And that's, you know, you can't have virtual care without all those supporting tools. And I think, you know, that's something that we're going to need to sort out as part of the post-pandemic recovery and transformation of our health. Well, it kind of depends on on where you're getting your care. So uh, I receive care at University Health Network, and, and all that stuff is, frankly, excellent. Yeah, totally but, agree. The problem is it's not uniform, right? Exactly. And people will have a very different experience elsewhere. And the other thing about the UHN, uh, which is, you know, fantastic portal, uh, it works primarily with the resources you know, that occur through UHN. And, you know, when you're visiting a specialist outside of UHN and have, you know, tests that are there, it's not always present. So I think, you know, the fact that our system is quite fragmented and unequally distributed is is a real challenge that we need to work on. Uh, Dr. Schneider, so uh, is there anything in your report on, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people who say, I'm not online. They're not technologically adept. They don't have access uh, to all the bells and whistles that are available in the big cities. So what about the inequities of place? Yeah, that's that's uh, such an important point. And I think Dr. Verma really, uh, uh, really uh, emphasized this, that, that the equity is really a challenge, I think, in both Canada and the U.S. And we have islands of... Um, uh, innovation and islands of digital of availability that people um, actually are now quite familiar with. Um, actually, we're seeing uh, as uh, laptops have been shared with school children, we're beginning to see that people are adults are using their children's laptops to uh, to do some of the care access that we that wasn't possible before. But there are still a large swaths of uh, the U.S. and probably in Canada as well where that, that level of uh, uh, access and facility with the technologies is just not quite there yet. I'll just say one thing, men- mental health uh, and behavioral health it, it, from other work that we've been doing has turned out to be a place where telehealth has been extremely useful uh, and uh, it has enabled you know, extending access to people, uh, sometimes just through text messaging or telephone uh, consultations, but there seems to be an opportunity there. Hmm. That's uh, one of the areas where, uh, obviously, we need more resources. Uh, Dr. Allen, are we doing enough of that? No, I would say that simply um, the, the the simple answer is no. We're you know pretty um, fault, you know we're we're compared to other countries. We don't cover in our publicly funded health system any mental health services really that are um, provided by anyone other than a physician. Um, so as soon as we want to you know meet the our, our mental health needs with uh, social workers or counselors, um, psychologists, we have to pay out of pocket. We have to you know, wait a really long time to get into some kind of publicly funded program. And so this is unusual. This is part of, you know, the characteristic of our health system that's really sort of narrow in what what we what we cover publicly. So it's a big gap and, and an area where I think governments are trying to, you know, increase investment to uh, better meet the needs of people with mental health problems. But it's uh, we're, we have still got a long way to go. Dr. Verma, out of all of this, is, is there anything that we could do to um, start to fix it? Yeah. You know, I think the, the main message that came through for me is that there are, there are two areas that I think, you know, we can make major investments in. The first is addressing the issue of the fragmentation of our healthcare system, of the fact that, as Dr. Allen was talking about, to get a referral from one doctor to another, I still end up faxing, you know, uh, <laughs> oh, consultation legitimately. And I'm, I'm often left wondering whether my message has even been received by the physician on the other side. So, you know, addressing the fragmentation in our healthcare system to improve the efficiency, because the truth is Canada spends about the same amount as all of these other countries, and we get slightly worse results. So the, we, it's not about necessarily just increasing the investment. It's also how we're using our resources efficiently. And I think a big part of it is going to be trying to address that fragmentation. You know, patients can 
have the same consistent healthcare providers, whether that be the people who are doing their home care or the people who are, uh, you know, doing their, their primary care or their specialist care, and that all those people are connected uh, seamlessly, that really, to me, is where there's a major opportunities for us to address a lot of the issues that are raised by this report. I could have sworn I read something about Ontario getting rid of the fax machines. Finally, am I wrong? I'd love to see it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what we'll get rid of first, the fax machine or carbon emissions. Let's see. Uh, Those fax machines. Um, I'm going to give the last word to Dr. Eric Schneider. 20 seconds, please. Sure. Well, our our, uh, our report's meant to stimulate exactly this kind of conversation, and, and I really appreciate uh, that the uh, insights that I've heard about today. Um, for the, uh, getting rid of the fax machine, I would point you to the <laughs> Netherlands, which has uh, really coordinated care in a digital world in a way that I had not experienced in, as a primary care physician myself. Uh, so uh, there, are, there are lessons to be learned from other countries. And uh, uh, we, we hope that collaboration and, and dialogue between countries can, can help to bring those lessons uh, okay. to reality. That sounds very interesting. Thank you so much, Dr. Eric Schneider, Sarah Allen, and Dr. Amal Verma. Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. And uh, tomorrow is Free For All Friday, people. If you couldn't get through this week, if you have more to say, uh, give me a call tomorrow on that special edition. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's an annual ranking of the healthcare systems in wealthy countries. The Commonwealth Fund assessment looks at affordability, administrative efficiency, access to care, and outcomes, among other things. Now, top performing countries include Norway, the Netherlands, and Australia. Canada is very close to the bottom. The only country we best is the U.S. So what do you think of that? Does it surprise you? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Dr. Eric Schneider, who is the Senior Vice President for Policy and Research at the Commonwealth Fund, uh, Dr. Sarah Allen with the Dalalana School of Public Health's North American Observatory, and Dr. Amal Verma, a staff physician in general internal medicine at St. Mike's in Toronto. Thank you so much and welcome. Let's begin with Dr. Schneider. Now, if memory serves, this ranking is actually pretty similar to what it has been in the past for Canada. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, and that's correct. Uh, the the uh, results uh, uh, have been pretty consistent uh, at the top and the bottom of the rankings uh, over the past uh, years since 20, 2004 when we first did the report. And uh, we have socialized medicine here in Canada. What do you see as the biggest problem? Is it access? Yeah, we, we actually uh, measure several different uh, domains of care, and access is clearly one of them, uh, specifically timeliness of care and uh, to some degree affordability. Uh, but we also saw the uh, differences in equity and healthcare outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, differences in equity. I mean, one of the things that was measured here, I'll throw this to Dr. Verma, was what we refer to as the social determinants of health, and that's spending on social programs and things like that. Um, how does that fit in for you, Dr. Verma? Yeah, thanks, uh, Libby. I think it's a bit um, sobering when we think about, you know, Canada's rankings compared to the other elite healthcare systems in the world. Uh, you know, we like to think of ourselves as, like you said, you know, we have socialized medicine, but the truth is we do not have a universal healthcare system. When someone goes to get a physiotherapy services or dental care or ophthalmology services, they're asked to by and large, pay for those costs out of pocket or by private insurance. And I think that's really one of the major effects we're seeing, especially when it comes to equity of access uh, in this system, uh, in this uh, comparative report. And I think that's one of the major challenges 
uh, that that we face as Canadians is thinking about: Do we really want a universal insurance system that covers all aspects of healthcare? What would it cost to get there? Uh, and you know, is that part of our binding social contract with each other? Mm-hmm. Well, the report found that income-related disparities in accessing healthcare are the largest in U.S., Canada, New Zealand and Norway. Dr. Allen, uh, do you agree that the problem is for the things that we still have to pay for, or or does it go deeper than that? Thanks. That's a great question. I think what's, what's great about this report is it covers so much of, you know, how we look at healthcare. So, you know, access is but one dimension, but Canada... Oh, hello, there... have I lost you? Sorry, what? Hello, can you hear me? Hello. Yes. Yes. Oh, hi. Um, just, I was saying that access is one of the dimensions they look at, and I fully agree. We fare very poorly on this. One of the things, one of the indicators that really struck me was that 40% of Canadians who have lower than median income report to have foregone dental care because of cost. It's just too expensive to see a dentist when we have tooth pain or when we need to, you know, have major dental surgery or you know, and meet our dental care needs. So that's just another example in addition to, you know, the costs we have in, you know, rehab and in mental health care. These are major gaps in our health system, and that's the access dimension. But we also fare pretty poorly on others, like wait times continue to be a major challenge in Canada for elective care, for even accessing your primary care doctor. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Schneider, do we have you? Yes, I'm yes. still here. Thanks. Good, good, good. Okay, I thought we were getting a little problem on the line. Um, and uh, again, in terms of, of access, I mean, here in Canada, you know, um, people with means seem to get better care, even though they're not supposed to. So did you find that in terms of the primary uh, primary care or the care that's covered? Or did you see most of the problem, as our other guests have been talking about, in terms of services that aren't covered, like dentistry and physiotherapy and other things? Yeah, our report points to um, uh, sort of any cost-related access problem, but we did notice that uh, dental care, for uh, for instance, was a, a particular weakness. Uh, and just having a regular doctor or place of care is something else that we ask about in the, in the report. And uh, uh, the U.S. and Canada uh, fare poorly on that. Uh, which then ties back to the issues of income-related equity. Uh, I should note that, you know, even though Canada ranks 10th, the U.S. is far behind uh, all the countries. Uh, uh, I said if, if healthcare were an Olympic sport, the U.S. might not qualify to even compete with the other high-income nations based on our analysis. Okay, uh, that's... Canada clearly is in the race. Canada is clearly in the race, but at the bottom. No medals for us on this. Uh, what is it... Uh, about Norway, the Netherlands, and Australia that makes their systems so good, Dr. Schneider? Yeah, what we've seen uh, in our analyses is that it's a combination of uh, four sort of features. The first is the universal coverage, uh, and that uh, also has to include sort of broad benefits coverage. Uh, Even in our Medicare program in the U.S., um, not everyone has, uh, people have benefits that aren't covered, and that can be a problem. The second is strong primary care and really 24-7 availability of, of primary care services. That's a that's a, seems to be a feature of the top-performing countries. Uh, the third is around reducing red tape and administrative barriers to care. Uh, anything that prevents people from seeking care or makes it difficult for them to com- comply with or adhere to, to treatments and, and uh, other recommendations uh, will stand in the way. And then the fourth thing is the investment in social services, especially for children and working age adults. Uh, that's where the, uh, the U.S. Uh, performs far worse uh, than the other OECD countries. Okay, everybody hang on, please. We have to take another break. And let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 744-740. I'm talking about a Commonwealth Fund report that ranked Canada 10th out of 11th. Not 11th out of 10, 10th out of 11th uh, in a ranking of the health systems 
in rich countries. So I'd like to know what you think of that. Are you surprised by that? Um, have you encountered some of the problems that they're talking about, either having to pay for things like dental care when you can't afford it, long wait times, all of that kind of things, which, by the way, are worse in the wake of the pandemic. Again, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And we'll be back after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The parliamentary budget officer has come up with a number on what it would take to improve Canada's long-term care system in response to the disaster that took the lives of thousands of elders in that sector during the pandemic. The number is $13.7 billion in new annual spending on top of the current amount, which is approximately the same amount, most of it spent by the provinces. Now, this would go for clearing waiting lists, adding more hours of care per bed, and increasing wages paid to workers. And of course, those are all things our provincial government, which has the responsibility for long-term care, has promised. And they keep announcing new spending in dribs and drabs. Now, according to the Financial Accountability Office uh, here in the province, the Ministry of Long-Term Care will spend $6.9 billion in the 2021-22 fiscal year. And that's an increase of about half a billion from 2020-2021. So is that increase enough to cover our share of that big number of the cost of fixing other things. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, I'd like to welcome Yves Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Thank you so much for being with us, Yves. It's my pleasure. So how did you come up with this number, $13.7 billion? So we looked at public sources of information that was that were readily available. We also looked at um, information that is not in the public domain, but that some provinces and territories had, and we, we looked at that. We also looked at a report that the Ontario Federal or Fiscal Accountability Office did a couple of months ago. And uh, looking at that in conjunction with the text of the motion, which seeks to increase the number of long-term care beds, increasing the wages, especially for those uh, the workers in privately owned and run facilities, and increasing the number of hours of care to get to an average of four hours per day of care, we arrived at that number. So based on the number of patients that are on waiting lists, um, the average wage at private versus public facilities, and the number of hours of care on average that's provided to residents, we arrive at that estimate of $13.7 billion each year and rising by 4.1% a year due to rising demand and costs as the population gets older. Uh, now, that includes $5.2 billion for home care, right? Indeed, because the text of the motion also calls to uh, increase the funding of home-term care, um, of home care, sorry, so that it represents 35% of public spending on long-term care. So the incentive here is to allow people who want to stay at home but still need care to get the, the care they need, but in a home setting as opposed to a, an institutional setting, well, recognizing that not everybody who wants to stay home is well enough or fit enough to receive these services at home. Did you factor in, I mean, uh, what we're seeing in polling after the pandemic, there are a lot more people who say, who say I'm going to stay out of long-term care no matter what. Uh, no, we didn't factor in that because what we found in doing the cost estimate is that it's very often driven, the, the decision to move into long-term care, it's not driven as much by 
the desire of the individuals, but their need, they get to a point where even if they want to stay home, it becomes very difficult for them to, to stay home. And the fact that on average, they already receive um, at least three hours of care per day, direct care, and the motion would seek to increase that to four hours. It speaks to the fact that these are persons who are in in clear need of of care. So even though the current trend might be to stay as as far away as possible from long-term care, long-term care homes, it might not always be possible to avoid that, even for those who would like to avoid that too for as long as possible. Now, this this money, um, did you deal at all with where this money would come from? Most of the money comes from the provinces uh, indirectly. There's some from the health transfer. Yes, um, but the motion, I think, calls for, I, if I remember correctly, the motion calls for the federal government to increase spending to ensure that this type of care is uh, available to residents in all provinces. So the assumption in in doing that uh, costing is that the costs would be provided for by the federal government. The additional funding would be provided by the feds. Now, uh, uh, this is probably outside of, of your scope, but as you know, here in Ontario, the provincial government is promising to do most of those things. And as I said in my intro, they, they keep announcing, you know, a couple million here, a couple million there. But um, there, the projected increase of half a billion dollars next year, uh, does that sound like a, a reasonable amount for Ontario's share of this, uh, I would call it a national deficit? Well, it depends what the objective is, but the costing that we did clearly shows that just to increase the number of beds to ensure that all those who need a bed in long-term care get one, that in itself would cost $3.1 billion nationally. Now, with Ontario representing, roughly speaking, 40% of the population, an equivalent number for Ontario would be upwards of uh, $1.2 billion just to meet the demand. So, if the objective is to meet all the needs, then a significant investment is needed. If the objective is to get part of the way there, then it might be sufficient. So it's difficult for me to comment whether it's enough or not. I can only talk about the report that we did. Getting into the specifics in each jurisdiction is a bit delicate without having looked at the specifics of each jurisdiction. Uh, and uh, you put an increase of 4.1%. Is that for uh, both the the residential part and the home care part? Yes. It's uh, based on the inflation that we see in that area, as well as the increase in the number of persons in the target population, so seniors mostly. Uh, just uh, as as we wrap up, uh, is, is that the kind of number that you expected? Is it is it bigger, smaller? Um, it's slightly, well, significantly higher than what I expected for the overall number. Uh, I expected the number to meet the demand to be higher than that. What struck me as particularly expensive is ensuring that all residents receive an average of four hours of care per day and increasing the funding for home care. These are the two components that struck me as much more expensive than I expected. Anything you'd like to leave us with? Just thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you for clarifying that for for us. That's really important information, and we appreciate it very much. Yves Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, well, turning now, you just heard that Quebec is introducing vaccine passports, and this is for non-essential activities. But what about proof of vaccination for essential things? Now, if you or a loved one need home care, we were just talking about home care, you have no right to know if the care provider is vaccinated, even if the patient is frail or immunocompromised. Now, you can ask, but they don't have to tell you because of privacy laws. Now, I encountered this situation myself 
very briefly, I resolved it. But it is a big worry for my next guest, Allison Engel-Yan. She receives home care for her disabled 11-year-old daughter, Gavi, who is at risk of severe COVID. And she's been told by the nursing company that she can refuse care, but they won't replace it. So what do you think of this? Should people receiving care have the right to know if their caregiver is vaccinated? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Allison Engel-Yan joins me now along with Tracy Tremaine Lloyd, who is a lawyer specializing in health law and a founder of TTL health law. Ladies, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Let's begin with Allison. Uh, You're also a lawyer. Uh, Were you surprised by this? What was your reaction? Um, Well, uh, was I surprised when they... So the the issue for me isn't um, so much the healthcare providers, in our case, nurses, um, providers' uh, right to privacy to disclose individually their vaccination status, but really a policy problem that uh, the healthcare organizations are not mandating that their um, nurses or PSWs um, get the vaccine. Um, because what I was told um, initially, we actually, this is before it became a political issue, just right when the vaccine started rolling out in Ontario. Um, and of course, um, as you know, healthcare workers were among the first to be eligible before even we were as parents of a vulnerable person. And, um, and I enthusiastically and naively, uh, was once, uh, one of our nurses said, Hey, I got my email. I'm eligible for the vaccine. Terrific. And we were so excited and thrilled to hear that in order to p- protect our daughter, Gabby, that I asked each one of our nurses, we have two, two night nurses as well as two school nurses um, that accompany Gabby to school when school is in. And three of our four were thrilled to tell us they were indeed registered or getting their vaccines. And one we could see was hesitant and continued to be hesitant. And it was after that that we got a call from the management level of um, our nursing provider to, to ask us not to tell to um, discuss with them the vaccine that we could unduly put pressure on them, discourage them from getting it. And uh, that uh, while my real concern is the vaccination status, I want to know that I'm being provided with a vaccinated nurses and the nursing organization and the LINs were very clear that, of course, we can refuse service, but this is absolutely an essential service to us. And uh, but they would not replace and they will not guarantee vaccinated nurses. Okay, well, let's bring in Tracy Tremaine Lloyd. And uh, that is the situation. Now, first of all, the whole issue of mandating vaccines for healthcare workers is huge. A majority of people are screaming for that, but the government insists it's not happening. And um, even organizations like the Registered Nurses Association that started off saying, let's get them to do it voluntarily, education now says it's time to mandate. So, um, Tracy Tremaine Lloyd, I mean, uh, what what do you make of this? Thank you, Libby. Uh, The fact is that it's a very serious policy issue, as as, uh, Alison has just outlined. And this hiding behind its privacy law is just nonsense. Okay, Uh, the privacy laws about keeping your personal health care private are just that. That's to you and to me. We can keep our personal health care private. However, and we have a right to do that if we wish, but we don't have a right to work in an essential service to uh, for for someone like Alison, for example, and have a job and not be vaccinated against this deadly virus. So she's completely right. First of all, she has an absolute right to ask the caregiver, are you vaccinated, while they don't have a policy. She has an absolute right to expect a response. And if they say, I don't want to answer you, then she knows the answer, right? But the problem is all of these agencies and hospitals and et cetera, all healthcare providers should be mandatorily vaccinated. And I just heard today that now the federal government is announcing that probably all the federal workers in federal positions are going to be mandated to be vaccinated. So what I don't understand is 
what do people not, not get? Yes, you can refuse to be vaccinated. Be my guest. But no, you can't be a nurse. You can't look after my daughter uh, and get her sick and maybe kill her. You go and get another job. In, you know, you don't have a right to that job. You have a right not to be vaccinated. But it's, I find it extremely frustrating, as does obviously my friend Alison. No, she's not my friend. That's what lawyers call each other. But, I'm your um, friend. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's incredibly, incredibly irresponsible. Like, what is it that they don't get? Uh, look, they should be allowed a job where they can look after Alison's daughter or my daughter or my grandchild and kill them. I want to give the numbers. Let me give the numbers out again. This has been a very big issue for our audience. What do you think? This is where the rubber meets the road on the issue of mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers. This is what is affecting people. And yesterday, our phone lines were burning up with people who were annoyed that that eligible children in schools and teachers are not mandated to have the vaccine even though they have to get about nine other vaccines. So the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We're talking to Allison Engel-Yan, and she has a disabled daughter who needs a lot of care, and she wants to know that the nurses who provide that care are vaccinated. And the thing is, they don't have to tell you, and... Allison, this was also quite interesting. There was like a little Twitter blow up where some of these companies were telling their workers, don't disclose, because many of them who've had the vaccine are happy to tell their patients and put them at ease. Uh, Yeah, And and Uh, I I think what you said is correct. If they don't answer you, you know the answer. That was exactly my experience, uh, unsurprisingly. Everyone who's got the vaccine is very happy to tell people they got the vaccine. And I think what was happening in that little blow up and in our experience is the agencies, because people like me were starting to ask for vaccinated nurses, they were discouraging all their nurses from self-disclosing because then they have people saying, well, so-and-so has a vaccinated nurse. I also want a vaccinated nurse, et cetera, which is, of course, a reasonable request. Um, but uh, to the, apparently, according to the Star article that I was also in and that Tracy was also in, um, they are now telling their nurses they are allowed to disclose if they want to. But again, we, we all know the answer. And, and I did, I did want to point out as well that um, my daughter, uh, who is 11 uh, and uh, the best, I might say, in addition to being the best, um, is uniquely vulnerable Um, as are all children under 12 who need uh, care because they're not yet eligible for the vaccine. And um, so even even more so than someone who is high risk who is over the age of 12, someone under the age of 12 is completely unprotected. And we all know um, that the Delta variant is impacting more children, is looking for the unvaccinated, and the best and safest thing until she can get the vaccine, and trust me, I'm working on that, she's already 11, um, is that her adults are vaccinated. So uh, um, as my husband likes to say, it's just really um, devastating in a way, and it's certainly ironic that perhaps her greatest risk is coming from uh, her nurse because all her other adults, including her two almost 14-year-old twin sisters, are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that we really want to see that movement, and, uh, the, in, in, of course, in long-term care as well. And um, I'm, I was heartened okay, to see that she's already vaccinated. Hold, hold on a sec. She should mm-hmm. be. Without uh, a doubt. Let's, let's take a couple of calls here. We've got Vera in Woodbridge. Hi, Vera. Hi, how are you, Libby? Fine, how are you? Good, thanks. I just want to comment that I agree that the nurses should be vaccinated. As a matter of fact, I think the government should have vaccinated them first before anyone else. Well, they did. Because I know... Well, <laughs> they did. Yes, but not all of them. They, they should be mandatory. Right. Because I know my mother was in a long-term care home, and they had a couple of cases, which scared the living daylights out of us. But if you're coming into my home to to help me, I, you, I have the right to say no, yes, but I won't get any help, which is really ridiculous. If I, I, I help, agree. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm fine. I mean, I don't have any elderly or children that have disabilities, 
But who is liable if somebody gets sick in my household after I'm taking so many precautions and I've been double vaccinated? I'm proud of it. And I and if they're going to give me the booster, I'll be first in line, you know? I'm trying to help. But if the government doesn't want to help us, who's going to be liable for these people that are going to die if they don't get these people coming to the house vaccinated? Well, you know what? Nobody's going to be liable because the government also indemnified long-term care homes, uh, you know, all but the most egregious uh, places and cases. Uh, you can't even sue them. I know, but I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, I, I just don't know what to say. This is ridiculous. I can't believe this. Thank you, Vera. We're not, allowed to, we're not allowed to ask somebody coming into our home. You, I think that's my right you can ask. You just, right. uh, they Absolutely. don't have to answer you. Uh, but you, what about teachers? What what we're doing about teachers? They should be on this list also. Uh, they yes. should be told that if you want to teach our children and you want to be in our schools, they're telling us to put masks on two-year-olds. You know, what, what about the teachers? They need to be mandatorily required to be double-vaxxed, and if not... They can be told that they'll be laid off until they do get vaxxed or until the layoff has gone so long it's time to let them go. And oh, sure, the union will be up in arms. Oh, you can't do that. It's a violation of their rights. It may be, but it, it may be a violation of their individual rights. But it's completely uh, allowable in a free and democratic society under well, our constitution. They can breach my rights for the greater good of society. Well, there's, so, that's not happening in Ontario. And the situation with teachers, which is uh, a little contradictory. I mean, yesterday I talked to one of the union leaders. He wouldn't come out and say that mandatory vaccination was a good idea. He thought, he thought it's a good idea. He wouldn't say that it should be mandatory for his members. And when the vaccines came out, they they were up in arms saying they should be first in line. And now they don't have to get it, even though they have to get nine other shots. Right. Well, th- you know, when you think about that and you talk it out, it makes absolutely no sense ethically or legally to, to make those statements. These people, the healthcare workers, and, and guess who got it all first? Ask the doctors in the ICU. Ask the doctors who were putting people on ventilators whether they got vaccinated. You know, they working their backsides off to save people's health. And, and, uh, and people are working in healthcare, even in the hospital where they're not nurses or doctors. There's dietitians, there's social workers. They're in the hospital and they don't get vaccinated. I think anybody working in any government type of job and teachers are also essentially paid out of the public purse. They are people who should be mandatorily vaccinated and if they don't want to be vaccinated you can't do this job it's that simple okay let's hear from sita in mississauga hi sita hi Libby. how are you fine how are you good good um since the government is not getting involved in making vaccine mandatory and and non-vaxxers have rights what happened to the vaxxers where is our rights we should have rights to choose whom and no information about people who are vaccinated that we want around us. Look at school, for example. They are doing so much to reopen school. The non-vaxxers, why don't they stay home and stay online? And only people who are vaccinated should do in class. That's a that's an idea. Sita, thanks for your call. Let's go to Julia in Mississauga. Hi, Julia. Hi, Libby. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, my, my question was basically the same as the other two ladies, uh, Vera and, and the last one about, like, what are my rights? But I also want to say now, I guess, is what would happen if we all chose not to be vaccinated? Where would we be? We would be in okay. lockdown forever. Right? <laughs> and we might be dead. That's right. I mean, because I mean, that's what happened. As soon as the numbers went up, boom, lockdown. As soon as the numbers come out of it, as soon as the numbers go up, Boom, lockdown. Like, how many lockdowns did we go through? Now we're into perhaps maybe a fourth one because the numbers are starting to slowly rise. So because I have no rights to uh, know that whoever's treating me is vaccinated or not, then I say, then okay, everybody, let's not get vaccinated. And then what's the government going to do? Julia, thanks for your call. Um, um, Tracy, can I say something? Or, go uh, ahead, Alison. About, um, about this 
the right, quote unquote, of anti-vaxxers to refuse the vaccine. Um, and, and this is more Tracy's area of specialty than mine, but I also have dabbled in constitutional law. Um, and I can say uh, that those of us with legal training uh, can think about this. And uh, uh, although it has not gone through the courts yet, I would be um, I, I would guess that um, as Tracy was echoing earlier, that indeed, these, if the government were to mandate, uh, for example, healthcare workers or teachers to get the vaccine or to not, of course, you have the right not to get it. You just don't get the right to the job. Um, that those laws would, in fact, be upheld, that they would be consistent with um, a law in a free and democratic society, which is part of our constitution. And I, I find that politicians are using that I respect charter rights line um, in, in a faulty way that is not actually consistent with what our laws uh, may say should this be taken to the courts. And I, I frankly believe that our government could enact these laws and that they would be upheld in court. And perhaps Tracy can, can add in her thoughts on that. Okay, yeah. that'll be Alison, a... Alison is absolutely right. They, they are, either they are ignorant of what the, the law is or they're deliberately using it for political purposes. And, and either one of those excuses or explanations is just unacceptable in a free and democratic society. So if the government don't uh, do it, maybe the OMA or the Canadian Medical Association or the Nursing Association should bring a lawsuit and, and say that, you know, our nurses are going to, if you're a member of this profession, it's going to be a requirement that you be double vaxxed. And if you don't want to do that, be our guest. But then you can't be a member of this profession. Have a nice day. Okay, and well, I I, Alison, it will be upheld. It, it will be upheld. You can't exercise an individual's rights over the rights of all of the rest of the greater good of all the rest of people in society. You just can't do that. Okay. That's not what the Constitution's about. Okay. On that note, it is time to wrap things up. Thank you so much, Alison Engel Yan and Tracy Tremaine Lloyd. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Pleasure to talk Bye-bye. to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, I think this is going to keep coming up uh, often. And uh, as we just heard that in Quebec, there's going to be a vaccine passport for non-essential things. Um, and I am curious as to whether this government will have to backtrack. And frankly, I also don't get the political calculus here because the vast majority of people want this. Uh, but anyway, right now we're going to take a break. And when we come back, how do we rank among other high income countries in terms of our health system? Well, the answer is not so hot. We will be dealing with that when we come back. And let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.